It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOT podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at cboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at cboc.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lookabaugh, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw with us, a voice and speech coach and a damn good actor, too. He is the official voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to the CBOC online convention. Day three, we are getting near the end, and I think this is going to be probably one of the most popular sessions, especially for the grad students and those who are just coming out of the school um, institutions now, or people who are transitioning into the IO career, because we're going to talk about job search strategies and interviewing techniques, which, you know, it, it is constantly one of the things we hear, Jeremy, is especially with the younger people or people who are just coming into the industry is, oh my God, I've got to go for a job interview. You know, I've, I've now have a potential of working in this field, but I have to go for an interview help. So what are we going to cover in the next 45 minutes? Probably a lot. And, that, <laughs> and that's a good thing. Uh, we've got a lot of information to provide, a lot of tips and tricks. And we also have Linda Ann Rogers that's uh, here. So <laughs> Linda Ann's like, what? <laughs> because she she helped, she's a great uh, experience in HR. So she understands really well in terms of the interviewing aspect, the candidate aspect. And we're also going to talk, we'll also talk about how not just it's interesting and here's where my mind's at because we've got this 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 uh these packages for recruiters to talk about how you engage your candidates so that's where my mind is still a little bit at but i think we'll talk both in terms of how as a candidate what you can do to augment your presence what you can do in the moment um you know really interesting tips and tricks for linkedin we're going to get into that but we also might talk a little bit about if you're a recruiter, how can you better understand IO, psycholo- IO psychologists or practitioners or candidates as a population um, and some of the challenges that they may have as well, Tom? Yeah, and there, and there are Pathfinder experts, and you know, I'll ask you to step forward, who you know over the last couple of years, Jeremy, have actually been working with you know those Pathfinder members. And working on things like their resumes and their interview skills. Uh, so there's already a knowledge base in the organization uh, to help people along. There is. Um, <laughs> and if any of you want to jump up, maybe we'll go to Linda Ann. And, and Linda Ann, you know, the, especially the interview process is not easy for a lot of people. Um, but it's something that we all have to go through. So are there some basic tools that you can give people or maybe we need to start with the misunderstanding that people often walk into um, interviews with, you know, and I see the, you know, once again, I'm going to reflect it back to um, the, you know, the world of actors and auditioning where you have to explain to young actors that 
usually if you go in for an audition for film or television, the first audition, nobody gets the job. The first audition is about eliminating everyone who's not right for the role. And it could take two or three auditions before someone is actually given the role. So are people usually walking into a job interview with the wrong mindset? I think it's... um... I think it's just a, a lack of experience. You know, a lot of people haven't had, you know, 10, 15 job interviews where they're getting good at the job interviews. And so one thing is, even if, if you get the opportunity for a job interview and, and you're not sure you even want the job, go on the interview anyway and use it as practice, right? That can't hurt you. Um, so that there's that. The other thing too is um, people often believe or have the understanding that they're going in and it's a one-sided process. And to go into it with, I'm interviewing you as much as you're interviewing me, and it should be an equal um, exchange process. And to have those questions uh, that you really want to know about the organization and how the organization functions so that you know if you're a good fit, they might have their idea of whether or not you are a good fit for them, but you need to understand if you are, if they're a good fit for you. And so having the ability to ask those open-ended questions, not the yes or no questions, right? Um, about what they're really looking for and being very purposeful in how you are trying to find out information about them with the goal being What can you find out and and have them start telling you and start talking to you about so that you can say, oh, you can start matching your skill set to their need so that you can um, go, oh, well, that's really interesting. I did that X somewhere else and really have it not be, well, I never got to talk about what I really think I want to do or what I bring to the table. That's your job is to help on. them uncover your skill set. So I'll start there. I have more, but I'll start there and, and throw it back to the group. Well, and and I'll, I'll post this to you and, and, and everyone else on the panel, but how do you find an IO job when they're not often classified as IO jobs? You know, we've talked a lot about, you know, you can, the, 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 the knowledge, the skill set that IOs have can relate to a lot of different fields and that you can, you know, you can go into HR, but if you really want to be in the IO field, how do you find those jobs when they're not advertised with looking for IO? I think that's one thing that, and I'd love to hear any pushback or feedback on this, but I think, especially in my experience working with some of the pathfinders, it's, there's just not a lot of IO titles out there in organizations and depends on the size of organizations that you really want to work for. In general, the, if you want an IO title, you probably need to go for a fairly large organization, right? Because they're going to have a human resource department first, right or wrong. They're going to have that first, and then they may add on to that with IO. But, um, and, and you're talking about a very large organization, for that to happen. And there's just not that many of them out there, right? So it's like less than 20% of the the businesses are that large. Um, So that's one thing. I think that in order to find a job where you are 
using your IO skill set, you have to be very clear about what that skill set is that you want to use and help yourself uncover jobs that may use it. You know, for example, if you're, if you really want to do, um, say organizational development or something like that, that might fall in some situations under an L and D, you know, a learning and development position, or, uh, you know, when I talk to some of the pathfinders um, and they tell me what they want to do, they want to help employees have um, a good work experience. Well, that comes under a lot in a lot of ways that comes under human resources. And we're talking about employee retention, employee engagement and those kinds of things. So how can you contribute on that level? So I would say it's going to be um, a small minority of situations where you have an IO title within an organization and you really need to understand what skill set you want to use and figure out where that that is in, in any given organization. Until we change the world and everyone has an IO. Uh- <laughs> Dr. Destiny, I want to come back to you because while we're talking about job searching and things like interview techniques, all of this is relatable to those people who want to have their own consulting firm, that you're not walking into an office now for a job interview. You're now walking in because you want the job of being their consultant in the IO field. So, what advice can, you know, since, you know, you do that all the time, uh, what are some of the, the little tricks that you've learned about, you know, that situation of going into an office, sitting down across a desk from someone and trying to get the job? Putting me on the spotlight here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is actually, you know, this is, this is a topic that really, um, I think I, not only feel very passionate about because I've been there where many of you are, but because I've helped so many people through this, both through the military transition and in, in our field. So a couple of things, you know, we, this is the reason that we have created and embedded this micro-credentialing IO thought leadership uh, skills badge process throughout this three-day event. So if you haven't picked up your workbook, uh, please do, because there's some really good self-assessment assessment type of questions in there that get you to really think and strategize about your own job search techniques and things like that. So that's the first thing I want to say, because um, that's where we have been talking about creating, you know, this whole idea of you becoming a resource, you know, defining your expertise, what is your value proposition? You know, I have, uh, there's a lot of military officers who leave the military and me and my husband laugh about this all the time because his friends say this to him. They're like, we're going to go be consultants. And I always ask my husband, I'm like, did you ask them and what? Because I don't think people understand that sometimes consultation requires you to have a very specialized expertise in most cases. Um, And so, you know, because basically you become a trusted advisor. So if we think of it from, okay, like long-term goal would be consultant potentially, what would you consult somebody in and on? What do you feel comfortable and confident in and on? What kinds of, you know, situations would you feel, you know, okay in bringing up a, you know, your skill set in this? So, you know, and I've talked about this previously it's really about the IOE stuff, right? And, and and where I tell people, because so many people are seeking to find, they're seeking to find, they're seeking to find, they want to find it. 
where are you right now in your current workplace and where can you bring in some of those things and get the feelers, right? Feel it out. There have been things in the past I thought I wanted to do. Um, and then I went through some, you know, situations where I kind of put myself in a situation and then I realized that is not what I want to do at all. Uh, so you kind of need to figure out, you know, how many people have dated people and they're like, you know what, I never want to be with somebody like that ever again. So you find out what you don't like whenever you go do these things or when you put yourself in situations, right? Um, and that's how we grow. And that's how we figure out where we can end up as far, even from like a professional stance. So, you know, once again, that, that, that going back to that, you know, what is my expertise? What's my specialty? What are, you know, how can I become a resource? And if you view it through the lens of like map that to what are your competencies? What is your collection of knowledge, skills, abilities, attributes, you know, uh, behaviors, you know, those things. Um, start really identifying that stuff with yourself. I took a competency test that's free and I posted it in the chat. And I was really <laughs> surprised at not only what my strengths were, but what my weaknesses were, because I thought like, oh, I I was actually more amused by my weaknesses because I thought I was actually strong in some of those things. And so it made me really self-assess. But my number one um, competency was actually decision-making, which I found to be funny because in the last three jobs I've had, I've worked in a flat organization and working in a flat organization and being prior service military with no identifiable chain of command and being a decision maker by competence is extremely challenging. And so I wonder why I drive myself crazy. And now I'm like, oh, that's why, because, but I'm, but I know now where my strength is. And so when I have opportunity to bring that competency to the table, knowing that they're a flat organization, that is when I really thrive. So bringing that IOE back into. And I can tell you that the last couple of positions I've had, they've created the job for me, the title. So mm. the last job, they were like, create the title and the scope for yourself. And like, we'll see if it fits in with our, you know, business alignment and an agenda and vision and all that. So oftentimes I have other colleagues who tell me that's what happens to them as well. That's kind of the dream, isn't it? Uh it is. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to just show up and do. <laughs> yeah. Jeremy, let's go to you. Is it me, Linda Ann? I thought you were before me or did you? Well, I went right. I went to you first because I have a question for you. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Let me get this out. Can I get this out of the way? Right, yes, thanks. you can. So we had a Pathfinder member. She lives in New York and she was fresh out of an IO program, like right out of an IO program because she joined while she was in an IO program. Actually, hey, funny story. Her professor actually joined our Pathfinder program, which is interesting because she told him about it and he wanted to get more into the practice side. But anyway, that's not why I mentioned this. She got it. She ended up getting a job, some kind of a job in, in training and development for a small company. And you want to talk about having imposter syndrome because it's nothing she had done and she didn't know what we did. Uh, we, we like in the back end with, with CBOC, we, talked amongst each other, like, how can we help her out in this regard? So we ended up, I ended up connecting her with an old colleague of mine that worked with the tools. Cause it was like, you graphic designers know like your articulates and all this kind of stuff, who was really an expert in that because she had to develop these like graphic design programs. So then they were able to take it, but within like three months, you know, she's off to the races, feeling comfortable in her job, doing great. I don't know. The, the reason I'm sharing this story will be different for each person that takes whatever they want to out of that. 
because that'll mean something different for everyone else. But also in terms of it's, you know, uh, Destiny, you and Lee talk a lot about like with government jobs, usjobs.gov or whatever it is, how it's like the black hole because you never hear, you don't hear back often. It's tough. And that's how often we feel when we're applying for jobs, you know, in any industry and especially with the IO. So there are different things that you can do and weigh these options carefully because sometimes they're a good idea. Sometimes they're not. And you hear different things from different people. Um, Oftentimes on LinkedIn, many of you know this, you can contact the hiring, you can contact the hiring manager of a particular job. It'll say who it is. If you have a genuinely genuine question about that particular job, you can connect with them. The one important thing is getting your name in front of them so you can connect with them. The other, I've had people come to me and they, they've had success with at least getting their foot in the door because they realize that there's something if you're if you're applying for a job and there's like a there's a broken link, something's not working, you can connect with HR in the background. You can usually contact somebody there and let them know that hey, there's something wrong with your job application. Again, you're being proactive in that way and you're just continuing to again, they want a a, a your name, you want your name to to stand out. The other thing that you can do, think if there's there might be a certain company that you want to work for, or there, or maybe you're just scouring other companies. But let's say you want to work with in a particular company. We all know that IO psychology it's kind of like a fraternity, right? You meet someone. Could you imagine you're outside or you go to like a Fourth of July thing and you meet someone and they say, you know, I'm I'm an IO psychologist. You're like, oh my gosh, it's like you just saw someone for the first time on a deserted island, right? Like, oh my gosh, finally someone who understands. So. Something you can do if you click on a company profile on LinkedIn and you click on people, you can search, just search people, IO psychology. You'll find people there. Uh, Tom, we were working with an with a Pathfinder uh, who worked in Walmart yeah. at the the meat the meat counter, and he wanted to he wanted to see if how he could might have an IO role because he was getting his IO degree within that particular organization. So he went through the Walmart company page and just tens of people who had tens, right? It's not like hundreds of, it's always like ones and twos because it's IO psychology. There were tens of people who had an IO psychology degree, some work in like middle management, uh, some, some, you know, more executive roles, but there's different ways to get creative with that. And I'll reiterate something that Lee has said a couple of times too. You're often doing IO work in your current job. You can go to, you can look at job descriptions. You can go to ONET. Destiny's posted that link up a a couple of times in the chat and you can find out like here are the tasks that IOs do. And likely what you'll realize is that whatever job you're currently working in, you're likely doing some of those things. And what you can do is start to tailor your job and start to do things, which means you can then tailor your resume. Of course, you know, you've got to be ethical. Don't lie. All those don't completely change your job and job description. But there's oftentimes you'd be surprised at what you're doing that's already on that task list for IOs in ONET that you can start to make your IO resume uh, accurately reflect the IO work that you're doing. And mm-hmm. with that, Tom, I hope you forgot the question that you asked me. We're going to ask. Not at all. <laughs> um, I said earlier in, in my 45 minutes near the end that 
you know, if you spend time with me working on your voice and then you spend time with Jeremy and you learn FBI negotiation, you know, and then walk into your job interview, you'll probably do well. Um, who is in charge of the room in a, in a job interview? Do you let the recruiting person take charge of the room or as the candidate, do I want to walk in and take charge? I'm going to get in a lot of trouble here, Tom. <laughs> well, I did share. <laughs> I shared, I think it was yesterday, how it was years ago, I went into an interview and I was, somebody probably gave me advice or I thought it'd be a good idea to, to ask the inter, interviewee good questions. And that interviewee said, look, I'd, I'd like to ask the questions here. And I was like, okay, I was putting my place really quick. So don't just walk in and start asking questions. But who's in charge? I like to think about it as this. We talk a lot, Tom, about leading conversations to a place better than where it's headed recruiters, it's just by nature, they're taking charge. It's it's kind of like, I don't really mean it like this, but it's kind of like take charge, but let the other person think they're taking charge. It's not quite like that, but it's really leading that particular conversation. So if there's a particular comment that's made, because you do want to get more information, you want to know why these questions are being asked. You know, Is there a particular organizational challenge? Otherwise, you just have these static questions you're sitting there in the hot seat. But when you craft it and when you start to practice, and we do a lot of role playings right with our clients on one-on-one, Tom, when you can craft it, you can usually pick out these different things where they say something or ask a question. And it's sometimes a very simple, it seems like that's one of the most important parts of this role. And then just silence. And who knows? They may say, yeah, we've had a particular challenge recently. And now you have time to think while they're talking. So now you get some little refresh brain time, plus they're giving you more information. It's just like in a typical on a debate stage, the less talking you do, sometimes the better because you just keep getting more information and more information and more information. And the, the in most conversations, it's the less you talk, the better. You usually wanna go for about 25% of the time. And I think it's uh, Chinese, in China, like the businessmen, when they come over to America, for example, they often use an interpreter, even though they completely understand English, they completely can, can speak it, but they pretend they don't speak it well so that they can have the interpreter interpret to them because it buys them time to think before they answer. So that's an example to take note of for everyone in terms of the why it's good to ask good questions just in in general or why it's good to ask reflective statements because simply repeating back for example the last three words of of something that somebody says can be very impactful for them because now they feel heard and understood but it also gives you time so they might say something like um yeah as of lately we've had high turnover in our eastern eastern region because of um I don't know, poor training. You simply say high turnover because of poor training. That's it. And then usually they'll keep talking. I will provide this. uh, I'm going to provide this golden tip for salary negotiation for free right now. It's very effective. It's very helpful. It's very useful. A lot of times it's, all right, they they ask you up front, what are you hoping to make in this job? Or what are you currently making? I think that question's kind of out the door because most organizations aren't. I think there's like state laws. They can't ask that or something. So think of this as a little bit of a tennis match. Um, 
there's been so much success for, I coached somebody on doing this. Uh, she was a former colleague of mine when I was teaching uh, PhD IO psychology field study classes. And she ended up moving to Alaska where they had caps. Uh, it was a government job in the teaching realm, but they had caps. Like you can't make more than this. Well, she ended up getting asking for like $10,000 more and they ended up giving her $20,000 more and putting her up a tier because this is simply what she did. And this was, you know, just simple coaching session, quick role play. She gets it. Boom. There you go. So when they ask how much are you hoping to make in this particular, in this job, it's a very simple, it sounds like you have an idea of what's budgeted for this position that you, that you'd be able to share. You would be surprised at how many recruiters and hiring managers are chomping at the bit to tell you what the job pays because they don't want to keep you in the process any longer than you don't want to stay in the process if you're not going to accept a job based on the the money or anything in there. So they're actually wanting to do this. Every person I've coached on it has come back and be like, yeah, they just told me. But think about if you don't do and, and if they push back. So here's what you do. Sometimes they say, yeah, well, I don't have anything budgeted that I could share. Maybe you could tell me what you're expecting. Again, the tennis match, you put the ball right back in their court. Then you do this thing. It's like a, a big range, right? Or a crazy range. And you and it's basically something to the effect of, well, I've seen and with this particular job, with this particular job title, it can vary from organizations. For example, an IO psychology role at you know Ollie's discount store could be 90,000, but at Lockheed Martin, 150,000. And then say, it seems like you, since you're the closest referee to, to your company, it sounds like you have something in mind that fits this company in this industry in terms of what's budgeted. And by then, usually they just go, yeah, well, okay, well, we're off, we're paying for this job as X, Y, Z. And think about it like this. And many of you have, if you come in and, sit and it's a job, then they're going to pay like 130 and and they say, how much do you want to pay? And you're like, well, or how much, how, how much do you hope to make? You're like, look, I just want a job that you might be like 85,000 for one. They're going to think that you're not competent enough because you don't know your value and you don't know the value of the job and what you need to bring to the job. If you say 180, then you've knocked yourself out. If you say 120 and they were going to offer you 130, well, now you just aren't getting $10,000 a year that you could have gotten. And then you think about that in terms of bonus, in terms of, you know, put that over the course of, let's say you stay with a company, which people don't stay with companies that long anymore, but let's say you stay with a company for 10 years. Think about how that affects um, like compounded salary increases just from that one initial loss on that $10,000. So that's something that's important too. Tom? <laughs> um, all really, really good information. Uh, Linda Ann, you've been waiting for quite a while. Let's go over to you. And Dr. Juliet, we'll go to you next. Okay. So to follow up on what Jeremy was talking about as far as salary negotiations, understand that when you're working with a recruiter versus a hiring manager, it's a little different motivation for them. And so, and there's a difference between working with an internal recruiter and an external recruiter as far as how easy is it to get information on the salary range out of them and, th and things like that. Um, and uh, so on your resumes and getting in, like one thing to get into the to, to the um, interview and have good technique for that process uh, and making sure you're getting information and having a, a good 
two-way conversation versus the one-way conversation and making sure you having the opportunity to match your skill set that you want to use to what they're identifying as their challenges and things that they need to solve. To get into that part, you need to get, get the interview, right? So you have about seven seconds with your resume to have that person decide whether or not they're going to even digest that resume, right? If you're using, if you're applying to jobs that are using ATS systems, that is a black hole of life. And when you're about 65, maybe you'll get an interview. You know, it's just awful to use those. They don't, they screen people, um, qualified people out. And and it's really, I wouldn't say it's an efficient way of, of marketing yourself. So I would definitely go the route of doing some informational interviews, doing some peer interviews, going to the companies that you have that maybe they have a job posting and then going to find that peer where you can have a conversation. Because think about this, they are, you know, that person that you're talking to, that job may be the person who needs to sit next to them. You never know. And they know who they want to work with. So if you can have that conversation and they go, this person is great, whatever it is, that's a, that's one way, you know, there's. There's so many challenges to getting in in the door these days. As far as your resume, make sure that your resume is designed for the position you're looking for. And I get it that, that some of them are very different. You may have a couple of different resumes. Do not try to tailor every resume to every job or interview. You lose your mind. Uh, but I would suggest that you not have your resume written as a job description. In other words, what jobs, uh, um, resumes that are written where I did this or this was my function or whatever is not going to be as effective as if you use this um, formula, what's called, um, it, it's got a couple different acronym names, but I've used it for a long time. It's called PAR, Problem Action Result. You want, and this is one of, in one of the previous sessions, I, I talked about tracking your impact. What are the metrics that you've that you can um, identify because you want numbers in your resume to, to have them understand that you had an impact, whether it was, you know, you came in, um, you exceeded revenue and came in under budget three years in a row, or, you know, you saved this much or whatever it is, have some numbers in there and have it address. You can have a, a paragraph description of kind of what you're general responsibilities are, and then give two or three bullet points where here was the situation, here's what I did, here was the result, so that they can really see what you brought to the table. And that's your value, part of your value proposition. Um, Also, women and men view themselves differently when they're looking at a job posting. And women tend to be a little harder on themselves as far as thinking that they need to meet all those criteria before they apply to the job men don't have that as high a standard. So I would say if you're meeting 50, 60% of those things, especially if they say these are the required ones, and then maybe you've got one or two of the nice to haves, apply to that job. Um, When you're in the interview, make sure you're answering the questions they ask Mm -hmm. and then verify that you have satisfied their request. I've seen, you know, I've done some role playing and whatever, and, and and I had to come back to the to the individual and say, I, I understand what you said. That didn't answer my question. So make sure you're focused on answering the questions that they ask. And yeah, I think that's what I have for now. Um, 
so, and I think I think you kind of mentioned this, but let's say I'm a grad student. I'm graduating next May, you know, from my IO program. Um, can I be sneaky and start looking at organizations I'd really like to work for and call up their HR department and go, hey, I'm a grad student. I'm doing some research and I'd like to come in and interview you about your organization. Is that a good way to get your foot in the door? Because by the time you graduate, they may be looking to hire. Oh, absolutely. One of the, but the key on that is, is during that time, you cannot ask for a job. It right. cannot be a transactional situation. So the, I highly recommend you doing that. And I would always, when somebody would call, I would always say, sure, no problem. Um, and but and it can help you focus your resume or, or your process and, and how you position yourself and all those kinds of things. Um, and you may be, you know, putting a seed in, in the back of their mind and, and so forth. But it just cannot be a transactional process. Good. Good advice. Uh, Dr. Juliet, let's go to you. Hey, friends, I have another screen share. So uh, please be patient with me. OK, um, some of what I'm covering, uh, Linda Ann did share. Um, and I saw Dr. Destiny also mentioned. So, all right. So these are some of the things that work for me. These are some of the things that have worked for some of my clients. Uh, so I'll pass them over to you. Um, starting from the top. And please excuse any spelling errors. Uh, I tried to organize this very quickly. So Dr. Destiny mentioned the STAR method. Um, this is very helpful in kind of compiling and summarizing your KSAs, also organizing your thoughts for your interview. So STAR means situation, task, action, result. What challenge or situation was your team or organization faced with? What were you given to do? Um, and how did you apply your knowledge, skills, and abilities to meet that task? So that's where you can mention uh, a focus group, a survey, analysis, um, meeting with cross-functional stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. And what was the outcome? What did you improve? How did you make money? How did you help the organization make money, save money, or achieve their objectives? And I promise you, I'm going to try my best to be very quick if my computer would move. <laughs> Let's see. Okay. On the next screen, this is my template that I use. Other people have other templates. Um, recruiters or HR professionals, they might also have their recommendations. I wouldn't say there's one perfect way. I've noticed a lot of people have varying ways of how they present their resume, um, but some, they prefer a summary. Others say, don't include the summary. You would list your professional experience, your education, and then additional information. If you're a grad student with not as much um, or a recent grad with not as much relevant experience, that's where you could move your education above the professional experience section. Now, for uh, federal resumes, it's a little bit more involved. You might have a resume that's about three to five pages. Mine is at least five pages because it's more drawn out. Um, so this is where you would put, you would include some of the critical information that would qualify you, uh, would identify you, whether you're a federal resume or not. If you're a veteran, they have something called Schedule A. So if you identify as having a disability, you receive preference in recruitment and possibly selection as long as you are qualified for the role. Um, and then, of course, you would indicate whether you have a security clearance 
Um, when you spell out your experience in paragraph form, you would list your primary duties and then you would highlight some of your accomplishments and anything notable, any projects that you worked on um, that, again, might highlight and speak to the skills, knowledge and abilities that you've applied. Um, what I also like to include is related competencies that may not have been, um, you know, and those technical IO competencies that may not have been included, but you've applied them in achieving your duties or highlights. What I like to tell my clients is you are not a robot. So if you're going for an admin position and it says that you made copies, anybody can make copies. You want to speak to what you're making copies what made your making copies special? Did you streamline anything? Did you improve um, operations or how quickly they did it or how efficient it was done? Um, and I will show you a couple of examples. So this is just what I took from my resume. Um, and I'm going to include it from an IO related role versus a um an IO related role versus my role in sales. Usually, um, what I've been told is to use no more than six bullets. Um, and usually you don't want them to go more than two lines. Um, this is because I have a federal job. My standard resume is um, it's it's a derivative of my federal resume, but that is the recommendation. So, again, you want to use some of the technical language that you find either in the job description or the qualifications. So for a D. EI role in the federal government, you know, working on EEOC, the MD-715, um, certain policies and reports, those are things that are relevant um, to DEI-related roles. And so I, I included those keywords. Um, when you're looking at trends, when you're looking at barriers, that's also another way you apply your IO skills. And so that could also be something that pops up in the system um, for a private company. But again, you want to make sure that some of those keywords are aligned with what you're actually finding in the job description. Um, and then this is a federal resume uh, layout. So you'll see that I pulled some of the competencies um, highlighted in my duties and highlights. The duties are more my day-to-day. -day. What am I responsible for doing? The highlights are more some of the successes or the notable projects that I worked on. And then this is for sales. Um, so some of you had mentioned that you're coming from, uh, yes, you can write in paragraph form for your duties. Um, some of you mentioned you came from sales, you're coming from a different field outside of, you know, HR or the directly human capital related role. So that's where you want to highlight numbers, but you also want to use the skills that you applied in achieving those numbers. So for example, uh, conducting a focus group study, understanding the needs of cross-functional groups, um, and so on and so forth. I also was able to serve as an employee engagement champion. So I also highlighted that to show that I have already begun applying my IO skills in a role that's outside of the human capital function. And then again, this is how I've mapped it out um, for my federal resume. Of course, you have your duties written out in paragraph form. You highlight in bulleted form some of those notable projects and accomplishments. Um, and then you would highlight some of your related competencies. 
Some additional information I include is volunteer experience. So when I was first starting out, my volunteer experience was more what I did in my church. But what I would do is list out a couple of bullets of those specific skills that tied to how I've applied my skills as an IO or the job that I'm trying to land in. Um, if you serve in CBOC, you serve in SIOP, you serve in another professional organization, that's also volunteer experience. You're not getting paid for it, but you're still applying your skills. Um, so you can list that. Um, if you do other community work where you're not necessarily applying your IO skills, that's where, for me, I've put that as community involvement in another section. Um, others can disagree with me, but this is what I've done, and that's what's worked for me. Again, as I mentioned before, um, with your education, if you already have the experience, you don't need to highlight it above your professional experience. But if you're a recent graduate and you're looking for your breakthrough role, that's where um, you would keep it in the additional information section. Some of the things that have worked for me and that I have worked for my clients, um, Mount St. Mary, nice. I've attended Mount St. Mary in Newburgh, New York. Um, so again, when you're preparing for your interview, I would look at the job description and some of the qualifications and then come up with some scenarios as to how you've applied them in the workplace, volunteer space or school. But I would highlight job experience first. Um, so in your interview, when they say, tell me about a time or what is your experience saying, well, I have a lot of experience doing focus groups or I have a lot of experience applying research. That's what they ask you. And as uh, Linda Ann mentioned, as Dr. Destiny mentioned, as Lee mentioned, you want to highlight a specific example and then apply that STAR method to conceptualize it. Speak to the results. What I found is some people will only speak to the results, but not how they got there. Others will speak to how they got to what they did, but not necessarily what the results were. So you want to have a holistic combination of the two. Um, yes. And as Dr. Rajanik said, you want to you want mentioning your teaching philosophy is also important. Um, I also look up public facing information that I can find. So whether it's the about me section, the corporate section, strategic plan, annual report for companies that are trading on the stock market, you know, whatever information you're able to find, sometimes you can you can mention those either in the questions you ask or um, mention some of those keywords in your interview. Some questions that I've asked that are valuable um, are what challenges are you looking for someone in my role to address? How has your team used data and or research to measure A, B, C, D, E? Sometimes they're not using that data yet. So when you mention that, they can see that there's an interest on your part to apply that or bring that data-driven approach. Um, how would you not perform? How would you describe a high-performing employee? My apologies. Um, I noticed, again, from the research you've done, you've noticed that the company has ABC challenge in this, that, and third year. How has the team or the organization worked to address it? What barriers are, are you still looking to fill? Maybe even asking if there are any improvements that they've seen from the time that they tried to address it. Um, what have you observed this or, uh, leadership's involvement or dedication to whatever effort you're being involved in? So for myself, if I was going into a DEIA role, I would ask, you know, what have you observed this leadership's commitment to fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion? Um, if you identify as Black or a person of color, Indigenous, or if you identify as having a disability, that's also an important question to ask. You want to make sure that you have a safe environment 
for you to thrive, for you to excel. Um, organizational trauma is a real thing. Um, toxic work environments are a real thing. Workplace bullying is a real thing. So you also want to interview that company to ensure that it's the right fit for you, right? And so asking, you know, what programs they have in place, what efforts they have in place, um, if they had found any successes if they're working to address any of the systemic challenges they found in the organization, do they have, um, what is their reasonable accommodation um, policy? What does that program look like? Um, have they experienced any backlogs? Because that helps you to understand, hey, if I have a disability and I request for a reasonable accommodation, this is what it might look like for me if I'm to be hired. Um, and then my last question is how does the organization, what does the organization, I'm so sorry, y'all, for these uh, the grammatical errors. Um, what does the organization do to foster employee well-being and psychological safety? I have, I have interviewed with an agency and they said it depends on your manager and I can care less if they hired me or not. That was an immediate no, no for me because I believe that in the organization's culture, leadership should be held accountable to also foster employee well-being and psychological safety. So when you ask that question, look for how they respond to it. You will find that some, uh, some you know, hiring managers or some interviewers, they'll be more transparent. Some of them may acknowledge that, hey, we're not there yet, but we're trying our best to make efforts into the right direction. They might tell you things or programs they've implemented to address some of the challenges they've faced in the past. They might speak to you about the employee assistance program. They might speak about, you know, work-life integration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, as Linda Ann mentioned, they're not just interviewing you, you're interviewing them. Um, and I would also say, if you are not selected, it doesn't always mean that you're not good enough. It might mean that you are not the best fit for that role or for that organization. Your goal is to also find the healthiest work environment that you can be your best self, you can be your authentic self, and you can thrive in. And so those are my little uh, nuggets that I had to share. Those were great nuggets. Uh, Jeremy, let's go to you. Dr. Nelson, I have a question. Are you ready for MGM in uh, three hours? Am I ready? Well, I still got my my satin scarf in my head, um, so I got to fix my hair and get myself together, <laughs> and then I'll be ready. Um, are you guys going to be on time? Because I'm usually late to things, um, so if you plan on being on time, I will be on time, and I I look forward to meeting everyone. I am the person in the blue and purple hair. Um, I'm a bit introverted, and I will be in a corner, so you can find me if you want. If you have more questions, because uh, sure. I will hide in a corner. Good. Looking forward to see you soon. And yes, you can connect with me via LinkedIn. Uh, I had more uh, useless tips like, like I offered earlier, but I thought of some more. So here, here's a couple other things. What's your current salary? I don't particularly like that. I don't know. I don't particularly like that question. I guess there's companies that are still asking that. Linda Ann, feel free to push back. You're the expert here. My response would probably be something like, if I were asked that, I would probably deflect, obviously, but I would, if they were hard on it, I'd probably say, you know, look, I signed a bunch of stuff when I started. Our company is a very competitive company, and I don't think they want it out there what they pay their, uh, what they pay their employees in specific roles, especially with a competitive job like mine in that competitive market. So I don't feel comfortable sharing that because I don't know if I'm allowed to. Linda, and you can speak on whether or not that's hogwash or not. Oh, she's got uh, something for me. So, just in a lot of come in a lot of states, it's illegal to ask that question anymore. Okay, well that's good. 
Yeah, and that's the reason. One of the reasons is to prevent gender gaps, right? Because women don't apply, don't ask for money the same way that that men do, and so it's part of that is to to close that that gap. Linda, it's also, let me, uh, let me just jump in for a second, Linda, and ask you: How many organizations in those states actually know that the law says you can't ask that question? Oh, a lot because word travels fast. But now okay. and what they do is they just put in the you have to post the job. In, in, like in Colorado, you have to post the salary range on your job posting. Nice. And they're getting around that with, you know, just put, putting a range of like $50,000, which that's going <laughs> to not work for very long. But yeah, it's, it's a, an evolving process. And also, it's a pretty crappy question to ask first, because what one company is able to pay you or how they saw your value seven years ago or whatever, or how much they're able to give you increases doesn't say much about your worth at that point in time, nor your worth moving forward. Because so, yeah, also something like, I think it, I think it's way more than this, but something like 60% of people don't even negotiate their salary. I think it's higher for some reason that number sticks in my head, always negotiate salary. When you are putting in a range so here's what you should do. First, do do your research. There are a lot of really good resources and tips that people were putting in the chat earlier. Think about what you should make. Think about you should you should really have a, uh, some kind of a portfolio that says, "Look, here's what this particular job or my particular skills X Y Z." You should have an idea. <clears throat> Excuse me. I will say if you put down any kind of salary range because you have to, or even if you give that that create that big range make the number specific. It shouldn't be something like 120 to 130. Make it something specific, right? 123.5 to 135.5. So here's the reason. When the number is more specific, it go, like it. people assume that there's some thought and calculations went into it. If it's just a random rounded number, it's really not coming from any place of authority. A specific number causes people to stop and think. Tom, I've shared this example before. <laughs> if you are walking and somebody is on the street and perhaps they're homeless and they're asking for money, if they say, hey, can you spare some change? You are less likely to engage with them or provide them with any change because it's just so general. But if somebody says, hey, could I have a dollar and 43 cents? You stop. You have no there's nothing you can do except for think, why are they asking specifically for a dollar and 43 cents? So right then they've got your attention and you may say, why a dollar and 43 cents? And they say, I don't know. They, well, they won't say, I don't know. They'll say, because that's how much a McDonald's cheeseburger costs. Now you're engaging in a conversation. You're going to give them some money because it's something very specific and, and a calculation went into that. Next. Uh, if you do get nailed down into some kind of a, a salary range, like what kind of salary range are you looking for? Linda Ann mentioned that what companies are doing is they're posting their salary range and it's like a $50,000 range, right? Oh, 130 to 180. All right. Well, there's that's kind of broad. Guess what? You can do that too. Because what you can do is you can say, well, um, my salary range is, you could say 130 to 180. And they might say, what goes what goes into that, that thought? Well, I'm not going to use specific numbers, but use specific numbers. And it's really just simply followed up by different roles in different different companies have different job duties, different responsibilities. So that's what my range is, depending on the particular job duties and responsibilities and some other things that come into play with the job, like how much travel, those kinds of things. So 
it's almost like that two can play at that this game kind of thing, but it's also ethical on your part because some jobs are going to be harder than others. Some jobs are going to require you to work weekends, 12 hour days, often that kind of stuff. So it makes sense if you have a broader range because some things you'll do for 130, some things you uh, you get where I'm going. I <laughs> get mixed up with numbers. <laughs> Next, um the other thing, here's here's two things, non-monetary terms and negotiations. So you can start to tell when a company is run out when they're when they say so a company can say we can't offer more than this. Maybe they can, maybe they're bluffing. But once they start to move to non-monetary terms, that's usually an indication that they cannot give you more money for that role. When they say things like, we can't give you more money and you're still pushing, and they're like, you know, how about an extra week or vacation? Or how about more on this? Or how about a flexible work schedule? When they move to non-monetary terms, it means that you're doing a pretty good job in pushing them. On the other hand, if they're stuck on a particular uh, salary, that's when you move to non-monetary terms and and you that's where you can push more. A salary negotiation, a negotiation just isn't about salary. It's about other benefits. So you can move to, well, what about an extra week's vacation? What about telework? What about this? What about that? So those are important, important notes as well. I'm pausing because I, I'm going to give that a, a little bit of chance to sink in because I'm going to switch for a second. And we talked about Trip Braden, about work and operations. And this is something that was plays into about an hour ago. It doesn't hurt if you're just starting an IO to get a job that's not IO related and get your foot in the door, especially if you have pretty much zero experience in the work world as it is. Get a job in a company, work in operations, do something because you, that gives the recruiter a year from now or two years from now when you're applying for your dream job, a chance to know that, look, this person just isn't fresh out of college and just going to come in and apply theory and those kinds of things. I have a feeling there's either something in the chat that I'm missing or Destiny's having a back-end conversation because she's laughing. And I know it's at me, so I'll have to discover what that is. Uh, Tom, back over to you. Well, let's pop over to Linda Ann. Yes. To Jeremy's last point is it's not always about a monetary conversation. There's a couple of things. If you know that they really need to fill this position as the HR person recruiting in an organization, I would often advocate for them going that extra thousand or $2,000 above that range or whatever they wanted to pay um, to fill the position. Because what I would say to them is they say, well, I can't afford the budget. I can, you can't afford not to, because you, it's another month before you find a candidate like this. And, you know, then you're losing those opportunity costs or or whatever. So if you're in a situation where you know that they're really trying to fill this position and you are a great match for it, then then let them go through that process. And, and that recruiter, in-house recruiter or whatever will come back and say, well, they're really not willing to go beyond that, that uh, budget. And then you can decide whether or not you're going to accept it or not. The other thing too is definitely push for that extra week of vacation. Absolutely. Especially if you're not in, um, you know, one of the, uh, if you're in a professional job, which most, you know, uh, IOs are, it doesn't cost them anything to give you an extra week of vacation because nobody has to replace you while you're gone, right? You bust your ass beforehand, you come back and you bust your butt afterwards and you make sure your work is covered while you're gone. So it is not costing them anything. And you and you, you know, 
prep your clients that you're going to be gone that week and you put your your little message on your 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 email. So always ask for that extra week of vacation. Uh, and with that, I think that's good advice. And the more vacation, the better, quite frankly. Uh, <laughs> we've only got about two or three minutes left. And I just want to open the floor for a couple of minutes to see if there's any questions, especially from those of you who might be, you know, within the next year looking for a job. Uh, or maybe you're in a job right now and think of transitioning to another uh, organization. If you have any questions that you'd like to pose to these uh, wonderful experts we've had today. Wow, they did such an excellent job. There's no questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? At seabock.com.